Part 2 Reconstruction Chapter 9 What can the family do? Quote, After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. End quote. Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Quote, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you, nor forsake you. End quote. Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. God warned the Israelites to be future-oriented. They were to go in and possess the land as he had promised. They were to be optimistic. God promised them victory. They were to take over completely the land of Canaan. God has promised that the meek shall inherit the earth, be meek, before God. Christians are to occupy until Christ returns. Luke chapter 19 verse 13. To occupy means to take over. Paul says that the saints shall judge the angels. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 3. Jesus said to go into all the world to preach the gospel and disciple the nations. He requires that we teach them all the things he has commanded us. Matthew chapter 28 verses 18 to 20. Jesus promises to be with us. We are commissioned to go by him to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been given. We are promised victory. We are to be optimistic. We are to be future-oriented. Our duty is to carry out Christian reconstruction. The earth is the Lord's. We are to claim it for him. In the following chapters, I want to set forth some specific things that we need to do as Christians. There are, there are concrete ways in which we can act to advance Christ's kingdom. Faith without works is dead. It is not enough to agree with the teachings of the Bible. We must act in terms of biblical truth. Let us see what we can do in the field of Christian education. How to choose a Christian school Not very many years ago, the problem of choosing a Christian school would have been fairly easy to solve. Most communities had no Christian school. Often there were only one or two schools available from which to choose. Now there are many Christian schools, especially in the suburbs of our large cities. How should a parent choose the right school for his child? If your church has a Christian school, you will probably decide to enrol your children there. The doctrinal position of the school presents no problems. The cost is probably low. You know the school staff personally. The decision is easy for you. You send the children there. I have helped start many church-related parochial schools. They have many advantages. Besides the personal, doctrinal and financial benefits of a church-related school, there are a number of administrative benefits. The physical plant is already there. This helps to cut costs and makes getting started easier. An organisational structure is in place. There is a lot of incentive to get this school moving as a ministry of the church. But there are disadvantages to a church-related school. Since such schools are run by the church, they may tend to be exclusively church-centred 
rather than inclusively family-centred. The Roman Catholic school has operated a system of parochial schools for a long time. They are controlled from the top. The Roman Catholic Church is operated on a top-down system of church government. Naturally, our schools are run that way too. Also, these days, liberation theology, as Marxism, is beginning to get into Catholic schools. This is deadly wherever it appears, and it is spreading in many Christian institutions, including seminaries. The family is a separate institution from the church. church should not take, the church should not take over family functions any more than it should try to dominate the state. Church is a ministry of grace. It is God's institution on earth to carry on public worship, to proclaim the gospel, and to carry out the Great Commission. Church is to proclaim the word of God and apply it in the lives of believers. The church should facilitate parents so that they can adequately carry out their responsibility to educate their children, along with other things. The church should also encourage us to fulfil our duty to labour in our vocations, to be involved in civil government, etc. The minister teaches that the earth should be subdued to the glory of God, the members then carry out that dominion mandate. Recently, the minister of a large church told me that most of the problems he had in his ministry centred around the Christian school the church is operating. He sees a serious problem with a church-run school. Some church schools have discipline problems because an attempt to deal with problems in the school has repercussions in the church. The admissions policy of the school will probably have to provide for acceptance of any child in the church. In some church schools, all teachers have to belong to the sponsoring congregation. This makes it difficult to get the best qualified staff. Perhaps the major disadvantage with a church school is that the school is, all too often, looked upon primarily as an evangelistic outreach of the church. Evangelism becomes the main thrust of the school. This may hurt the academic progress of the school. Christian children should have the very best education. The primary purpose of a Christian school would be to train covenant children in all areas of knowledge. Children come to a saving knowledge of Christ in a Christian school. That is all well and good. But the Christian school is not just another way to win the lost. I mentioned earlier that the availability of a building can be an advantage of a church-operated school. This may also be a disadvantage Usually the Sunday school rooms of a church are quite small. The Christian school classes will have to be small also. Such small classes, while considered an advantage, will increase costs a great deal. A larger class can be taught just as efficiently. The increased income makes it possible to lower tuition costs, to acquire better equipment and to pay teachers adequately. The church facilities may also lack in other respects also. One pastor, Morris Sheets in Dallas, has a very productive comment on the structuring of schools which is especially applicable to churches which don't have proper facilities. He suggests parents who want a school form a private corporation and build facilities which the church would then rent from the school at sufficient enough rates to cover the basic cost of the facilities. Then they are responsible for the oversight of the school and the pastor does not have to take the time for normal pastoral duties. The responsibility is placed squarely where it should be, 
on the parents. Of course, in choosing a non-church-related school, great care must be taken to ensure moral and academic integrity. You know your local church. You may not know your local Christian school, so check them out carefully. In choosing a school, I would consider the following. 1. The doctrinal position of the school. As a Christian, I want my children in a school that believes the Bible to be the infallible Word of God. This school should subscribe to the fundamental doctrines of the faith. I won't take the space to list all of them, but they would include belief in the sovereignty of God, Trinity, virgin birth and resurrection of Christ, the atoning death of Christ on the cross, salvation by grace through faith alone, creation, and the validity of God's law. Two, the educational philosophy of the school. Just because a school calls itself Christian does not make it so. A school may appear to be sound doctrinally and still be teaching humanism. I suggest parents read R.J. Rushdeny's The Philosophy of the Christian Curriculum to become better informed on a biblical approach to education. 3. Qualifications of the staff. I would start with the administrator. He or she will be the key person in the school. I would ask enough questions to satisfy myself that the director of the school is a committed Christian who understands what a biblical approach to education is. I would look at the director's academic background and experience. I would ask what he considers the purpose of the school to be. I would also ask about the qualifications of the teachers. The status educator will advise you to ask, Are your teachers state certified? That is an easy question to ask. It also is a poor question. The school administrator could answer, Yes, and the parent would be satisfied. It is not that difficult to attend college for four years, degree in education, and become certified by the state. Many teachers are certified, but not qualified. You want the best you can get, so don't settle for certified. Ask enough questions so that you are satisfied. If the school has good teachers, the admissions director will be glad you are asking the questions. When asking about teachers, don't be afraid to probe. Find out where they went to college, what kind of grades they made, and what other training they have. What books do they read? What do they believe? What kind of results are they getting in the classroom? Most parents want their children to have experienced teachers. Don't confuse the experience with the number of years someone has been teaching. A member of our local Taxpayer Alliance once noted that a teacher may have one year of experience repeated 20 times. Some teachers learn from experience. Others never grow on the job. I have seen young teachers fresh out of college outperform those who have had many years in the classroom. Don't prejudge a teacher just because he or she hasn't been teaching a long time. In making judgments about teachers, I would find out about the particular field or grade the teacher handles. If he is teaching biology, I would delve into that field. When I was interviewing prospective teachers as a headmaster, I questioned a teacher who had majored in US history. I asked her what she thought of the New Deal. She replied, uh, Do you mean Nixon's trip to Red China? I concluded she didn't know much about history. I asked a prospective English teacher to define an adverb for me. She couldn't.
Needless to say, I looked elsewhere to find a teacher to fill that position. 4. Visit some classrooms. Front office may tell you what a fine school they have. Be sure to visit some classrooms to see for yourself. In a few minutes, you can learn much about the school. Is the teacher in control of the class? Is she organised? Is learning going on in the classroom? In the lower grades, we demonstrate what the children are doing in their phonics, reading, arithmetic, penmanship, Bible, etc. Go over to your local government school to visit. Ask them lots of questions too. Why not? You're paying their salaries. While you're in the classroom, observe the physical condition of the room. Is there paper all over the floor? I have been to many government schools. Once I had difficulty parking the car because there were so many beer cans and bottles thrown around. A school facility doesn't have to be expensive, but it should be neat. An orderly atmosphere will indicate order and meaning in the school. A junky, chaotic situation speaks for itself. My wife and I were invited to a private school as consultants. On the way from the airport to the school, the headmaster took time to buy a lawnmower. We soon discovered the reason. The grass at the school was at least six inches tall. The school sign was falling down. We learned that the school gave no report cards. Public schools in that community must have been really bad for that school to have enrolled any students. 5. Look at the textbooks. About 20 years ago, I was visiting St. Thomas Episcopal School in Houston, Texas. Some of the teachers attending the conference were upset with a lack of good textbooks for the Christian schools. I recall Headmaster Henry Walters telling us that a good teacher doesn't need textbooks. He was right. An outstanding teacher can manage without textbooks or with poor textbooks. Such teachers are not in plentiful supply at salaries that most Christian schools meaning parents and supporters, are willing to pay. Textbooks influence students. When I was a lad in school, I thought everything in print was true. I would have believed the medicine man's pitch when he barked, quote, Don't take my word for it. Don't take anybody's word for it. Just read what it says on the bottle. Since most teachers find their textbooks very helpful, a school may as well have the best. Much progress has been made in this area in the past 20 years. We still have a long way to go. When you are sizing up a school, look carefully at the materials the students will use. The school is using essentially the same humanistic books the public schools use, then you had better find out why. 6. Consider the performance of the students. Jesus said, quote, By their fruits you shall know them, end quote. This was his test for religious profession. In education, we can look at performance. Testing is one way to measure performance. The school should send regular reports to the parents. A report card should give specific objective information. I've looked at all kinds of report cards over the years. Many of them tell you practically nothing. I prefer the old-fashioned kind with letter and number grades. Promotion to the next grade should be based on achievement, not how old the child is, or how tall, or how much he weighs. God requires honesty, and we should have honesty in reporting. God tested Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He tested the Israelites throughout their history. He tested Jesus in the wilderness. 
Testing is part of the Christian's life. It should not be avoided in the school. When choosing a school, look at test results. Find out how the children do on standardised tests and on the college boards. Always take into account the ability of the students. A school with a very exclusive admissions policy should have better results than one that takes students from almost any background. 7. Talk to your friends and neighbours. A good source of information is to talk with parents who have children enrolled in the school you are considering. If you don't know any, then ask the school for references. 8. Consider the cost of transportation availability. 9. Don't make a decision based merely on the following. A. Cost. A school may be very expensive, but not so good. Many excellent schools are inexpensive. In education especially, you don't always, quote, get what you pay for, unquote. B. Accreditation. The public schools are usually accredited. The mere fact that a school is accredited by someone is no assurance that it is the best school for your child. The same goes for licensure. C. Nice campus. I have had many a family enrol their children because we had such a, quote, beautiful campus, end quote. We Christians should pay attention to architecture, landscaping, and all the rest, but first things first. Remember that we worship God in the beauty of holiness, not the holiness of beauty. Man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. We should think God's thoughts after him, beyond the buildings and grounds, the government schools have spent billions on physical facilities. Remember what Mark Twain said about the teacher on one end of the log and the student on the other. Praying for your children's education yourself. I was raised on a farm close to nature. I have observed that mother cows watch carefully over their calves. I have been confronted more than once with setting hens, chickens keeping eggs warm until they hatch would have put up a tough fight if you tried to disturb their nest. I have seen the killdeer trying to divert attention from her nest of baby birds on a stony hilltop. Parents have a God-given concern for their offspring. This carries over to education. No one has more interest in the education of a child than a mother or father. This is the key to financing a Christian education for your child. God teaches us this by his revelation in nature. He also teaches this lesson in his special revelation, Bible. I want to suggest specific ways that you can finance a Christian education for yourself. Here they are. 1. Include tuition to a Christian school in your budget. When you set up a budget, you are establishing spending priorities and spending limits. You're making a plan and that plan should include education for your children. Many parents have a plan to send their children to college. They make financial commitments years in advance. Elementary and high school education are just as important as college, if not more so. If your child gets a good foundation, he may win a scholarship to college. If he doesn't get a good foundation, he may never make it to college. Start planning for your children's education, even before they are born. 2. Give up something in order to have money for the education of your children. Sell your television set. Someone gave us a black and white set about 23 years ago. 
After a few months it went in the blink. We threw it out. We never owned another set until about four years ago. The cost of a TV isn't all that much. The time spent watching TV is the greatest cost. Sell your TV and then use your time to earn extra money or work with the children on their education. Drive a second-hand car. The first owner of a car pays the most per mile to drive that car. The second owner pays less and the third owner even less. It is the most effective means of redistributing wealth in America and it is all voluntary. One of my sons has a car with over 200,000 miles on it and it drives like a top. Yes, I just bought a new car. I've purchased several new cars in the past 10 years. However, I was 38 years old before I bought my first new car. For many years, we didn't even have a family car. Our Volkswagen microbus was turned into a school bus. We got around in a pickup truck. Besides, I only have three children left who are still in need of formal education. The tuition money I don't have to pay for my now independent children buys me a new car every year, if I need one. 3. Move to a less expensive house. When most are house shopping, they would usually figure out the highest monthly payments they can afford. Then they buy the most expensive house for which they can qualify. The better plan is to buy an adequate house at a lower price. The difference can be used to finance the education of our children. The best plan may be to rent rather than to buy. One can rent a house for less than it costs to buy that same house. On several houses, which I rent to others, I'm renting the one I live in. It would cost me twice as much per month to buy. When we started our school, I looked for months for a place to rent. Found a charming brick house on two acres of land. We lived upstairs and held classes downstairs. The rent was 150 per month. Those two acres today are worth $1 million. House had 14-foot ceilings. After deducting a portion for the rent for school, we had a nice place to live at low cost. 4. Invest in your children. Children were the chief economic asset on the American frontier. The Bible says, The man is happy who has a quiver full of them. Psalm 127 verse 5 Children are a heritage from the Lord. Psalm 127 verse 3 What could be a better investment? When Mrs. Thoburn and I were married, we had practically no money. I was a student in seminary. She even paid our wedding license because she was afraid I couldn't come up with the $3 fee. We couldn't afford to get married. We certainly couldn't afford any children. We have eight children nonetheless. As our family grew, we were better off financially. We invested in our children and this has paid off very well. The payoff goes far beyond monetary considerations. Children also make people work harder. We are living in an information age. There is a premium on knowledge. Investing in our children's education is more important than ever. If they have the knowledge of the Lord and an understanding of his creation, they will be prepared to earn a living. 5. Get an extra job. You probably work 40 hours per week on your regular job. If you can't cut spending in order to finance your children's education, then the only alternative is to increase your income. 
One way to do that is to take on an extra job. People moonlight to buy a boat or to afford a vacation. Why not work some extra hours each week to pay for schooling? There is no law of the Medes and Persians, and certainly none in the Bible, that says we can work only 40 hours per week. I would never have made it financially on 40 hours per week. The 40-hour workweek is the salaried man's trap. It is a mark of present orientation. It is the mark of a grim retirement. It is, quote, part-time retirement in advance, unquote. Avoid it. 6. Perhaps your wife can earn some money. Your wife should not work outside the home if the result is the neglect of the children. When consideration is given to costs of transportation, clothing, food, taxes, babysitting, etc., the extra income of a working wife may be illusory. Part-time job may work the best. Part-time job at the Christian school may be ideal. At our school, we employ mothers to drive our buses. We use small buses that can be kept at home. The mothers may bring preschool-aged children with them on the bus. Their own enrolled children are with them on the bus. The child's vacation corresponds with the mother's vacation. Other part-time jobs at the school might be teaching, assisting teachers, secretarial or custodial work. The mother might handle a full-time position as a teacher, assistant teacher or secretary. A mother could work somewhere other than at the school also. She might be able to work right in her home. My oldest son has electronic typesetting equipment. Several miles away, a lady works in her home at an IBM word processor. She types the manuscript in her house. Then it is transmitted by phone to my son's machine. Today's technology is opening up all kinds of possibilities for women and men to earn income without leaving their homes and jeopardising family integrity. 7. Put the children to work. Several years ago, I was on a trip with a minister to talk with him about Christian education. And before the trip was over, I had convinced him that his children could be in a Christian school. The difficulty was that he had about eight or nine children and could not afford the cost. I suggested that the children work, and they did. They did custodial work at the school. They distributed flyers door to door to advertise a branch school we were starting. Eventually, the minister started a Christian school of his own. My own children worked at the school from the time they were small. They would start out emptying wastebaskets, then they would vacuum carpets. As they grew older, they mowed the lawns. The children who was 10 days old when the school began now runs the school. At age 23, he was considering an interview when the parents said, quote, You are very young to be running a school. Quote, he replied, I have been working here for 15 years. What is a child's incentive? In a family-owned school, it can be a lot of incentive, especially when they grow older and learn accounting. You never know when you'll meet a Saudi Arabian or someone else who will make you an offer you can't refuse. Several of our students have worked to pay their own way through school. The student who works has a greater appreciation for the education he is receiving. There are tax advantages too. The student is in a lower tax bracket than the parents. Under current tax laws, the student who works for a school that he attends full-time does not have to pay social security taxes. 8. Ask for a discount. Naturally, 
you promised to keep your mouth shut about your bargain. The school's owners do not want to face a horde of parents who insist on discounts. Most schools have some scholarships available. Perhaps they will be able to offer a discount if a full scholarship is not available. If I have space in the classroom, I would rather have a student sitting there paying half price than to have a vacant seat. School has certain fixed costs. It is better to have full classrooms. Perhaps you don't like to ask for a discount. It is better to ask for one than to force your neighbours to pay for your children's education at the public school. At least it is voluntary. 9. Get the grandparents to help. The grandparents may be barely making it themselves. On the other hand, their children grown and the house mortgage paid, they may have some extra money. Perhaps you are in line to inherit some money when they die. It might be in everyone's best interest. Use some of that wealth to help educate your children. I have known many cases in which the grandparents paid the tuition. 10. Set up a family trust. You'll need to see your CPA and lawyer about this one. Tax laws are constantly changing. I am not offering tax advice. I do know that some families set up trusts for their children. As of 1986, the income from the trust goes to the child. Since it is taxed at a lower rate, the benefit is obvious. This device has been used for a long time to provide college education. Problem. The 1987 rules have abolished this strategy for children under age 14. At any rate, consult your tax experts for the possibilities. 11. What about tuition vouchers? In recent years, many parents have been working to get a voucher system for schools. The idea is that the federal government would provide a voucher for each child of school age. The voucher would be worth a stated amount of money. Parents could spend the voucher at the school of their choice. They're public, private. The school would then turn the voucher over to the federal government for payment. The idea sounds attractive. The voucher system is supposed to provide more competition among schools. This would lead to improved standards for schools as they compete for the voucher money. The system would give the poor a way to afford private schools. Since the voucher would go to the student, not directly to the school, it is argued that there would be no control over the private schools by the government. I oppose the voucher system. The present system is unjust in that parents must pay for the government schools, whether or not they choose to use them. The voucher system would be preferable to the present system. That were the only alternative. The voucher system is not the answer. Under the voucher system, the government would still be taking money from some families to give it to others. This is socialism. It is not biblical. Can you imagine the red tape that the bureaucrats will wrap the schools in if this system ever gets popular? It would probably kill off the truly independent schools. Parents would have to pay for public schools, plus voucher-subsidised schools, all under the administrative control of the federal bureaucracy. What parents would have money left over to seek out a truly independent, non-voucher Christian school? While the schools would become more competitive than they are at present, they would not be as competitive as they would under a truly free system. The government would still be supplying the basic subsidy for the schools. Christian schools would become dependent on these vouchers. If the vouchers were discontinued, 
the Christian schools would be worse off than before. A major reason to oppose vouchers is that they will result in further control of the Christian schools by the government. The voucher plan already introduced in Congress provided that the vouchers could be used only in tax-exempt schools. If such controls are already being proposed, there is no reason to think they would not get worse in the course of time. A better alternative to tuition vouchers would be legislation at the state and local level which would provide property tax relief for any family that did not send its children to a public school. Suppose Mr and Mrs James Smith had a school-aged child. Legislation could be passed providing that if the Smiths do not use the local government school, they get $1,000 off their real estate taxes. I would not call this government aid because they are merely being allowed to keep money that the government has no business taking away from them in the first place. The Smith child could be sent to a Christian school, private school or educated at home. This would be a good deal for the taxpayers because the government schools cost a lot more than $1,000 per student, especially at the higher grade levels. Legislation such as this could be enacted at the local level without the need to get the federal government involved. No restriction would be placed on families as to where or how they educated their children. The tax abatement would be valid as long as they did not send their children to a government school. 12. Figure out ways to cut the cost of education. Educate your child at home. If you can't do it by yourself, join with another family or a few families. Help one another educate the children in your families. You could provide an excellent education at low cost. If you prefer a regular Christian school, then figure out ways to keep the costs down. Large classes are more cost effective than small ones. I have all kinds of detailed information in a manual I have published on how schools can operate more efficiently. 13. Pray for God's help and guidance. God tells us that we have not because we ask not. I have witnessed the providential hand of God many times in the life of our school. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not want. The government is not our shepherd. We should not look to government to meet our needs. We should look to God. Summary It is the family's responsibility to reassert its God-given authority over the education of children. This involves making decisions concerning the kind of education that is needed and comparing this ideal with the kind of education that is available. It also involves reaching into the wallet and paying for the service desired. There is no other way. Any attempt to get someone else to pay for your children's education is to abandon a degree of sovereignty over their education. To require others to pay for your children's education is to invite ruthless, power-hungry people to capture the education system. This involves giving up authority over the future. It should be avoided at all costs by Christians.